Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 2. And the message today is faithfulness or failure. Faithfulness or failure. In the world of professional football, high-profile players tend to get all of the attention. Even the best of fans often only know a few names on the team that is their favorite. And offensive linemen rarely get noticed unless they make a mistake. On Sunday, October the 22nd of 2017, Cleveland Browns fans gave offensive tackle Joe Thomas a standing ovation in the third quarter as he left the field with an injury. Prior to that injury, Thomas had played every snap for his team since he was drafted in 2007. A remarkable 10,363 consecutive plays. He was not a flashy, recognized superstar, but was instead a quiet, consistent, humble player. He was asked about this streak of over 10,000 consecutive plays, and here's how he responded. Something I've found comfort in is just do your job. I've got people in my family who get up and go to work every day and they don't complain. I'm blessed to do what I love so much. I just hope it means I'm a regular guy who gets up every morning and goes to work, plays as hard as he can, and is a good teammate. That's an example of faithfulness in a secular vocation with a particular skill set. And in the spiritual realm, it's even that much more significant that we be found faithful. Faithfulness in the Christian life is essential if you want to honor and please God. Faithfulness is listed seventh in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And it essentially means trustworthiness or reliability. Faithfulness spiritually is loyalty to God and it is trustworthiness or reliability to God and to his word. And our faithfulness shapes our service to God and the difference that we make for him now and eternally. The book of Judges tells part of the history of the nation of Israel. It's in the period of time between Joshua's death and the rise of Samuel and then the anointing of the kings. The theme of Judges is the downward spiral of Israel's national and spiritual life into chaos and rebellion against God, demonstrating their need for repentance and their need to depend on God. This book shows the consequences of unfaithfulness because under the great leader Joshua, who had succeeded Moses, They, at least in part, wanted to follow the Lord and his commands. They seemingly wanted to be obedient. But something happened along the way, and Judges reveals to us that there were some underlying spiritual problems that were disobedience really taking root within the people of God. Time and time again, they turned away from God, and they embraced idols and then they would have to, because of the consequences, repent and turn back to God again. And they continued to repeat these cycles of disobedience and consequences and then 
God sending a rescuer or someone to intervene on their behalf. And Israel's history unfolds in those cycles that take them further away from God until finally when we get to the end of the book of Judges, everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. They've digressed about as far as they can. We pick up reading here in chapter 2 and verse 1, which will provide some context for us of what the Word of God is presenting to us in this section of Scripture. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You are to tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named that place Bochim and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. The angel of the Lord making an appearance here, I believe, is likely either a theophany or a Christophany. It's either the presence of the Spirit of God himself in their midst or the presence of the pre-incarnate Jesus speaking these words to the people. And the reason that I say this is that the angel of the Lord said that he was the one who had led Israel up from Egypt. It was God who was faithful to deliver his people. The angel of the Lord said that he was the one who had made the covenant with Israel. And it's God alone who is faithful to keep his covenant and to keep his promises to his people. And when they went into the promised land, they were not to make a covenant with the people there. They were to drive out all of the inhabitants of the promised land. But they only did that partially, which led to significant consequences. They were to drive the people out and tear down all the altars to the false worship. But instead of doing that, they ended up intermingling with the people. The angel of the Lord said that the people had not obeyed him personally. Verse 2, you have not obeyed me. And I believe this is the voice of God speaking to them, that even though he had led them out from bondage in Egypt, even though he had made a covenant with them and promised them that he would be faithful to them and told them specifically what they were to do, they had not obeyed God. And the consequences were that the people in that land would become thorns in the sides of the people and their gods would be a trap for Israel. Something interesting happens here in verse 4. In response to the words of the angel of the Lord, the people wept loudly. And their emotional response at first glance seems hopeful because it looked like they were on their way to repentance and to revival. But the challenge here is that true repentance leads to action. And you can be sorry about the consequences of your sin. You can be sorry about the results of your action and not really change anything at all. In other words, you can weep loudly outwardly and yet not be weeping in your soul. And the sacrifice to the Lord, what amounted to, I believe, were empty sacrifices. 
We pick back up in verse 6. Previously, when Joshua had sent the people away, the Israelites had gone to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnoth Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaosh. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. Joshua's legacy was evident in his godly leadership of Israel during his lifetime. They were faithful during that time, at least for the most part, and even during the time of his initial successors of those who would lead. But what follows is this tragic example of spiritual failure that resulted because the people were not wholeheartedly committed to God. And what we're going to do in this time that we have together today is we're going to look from the negative to the positive. We're going to consider the negative things that bring about spiritual failure. And then we're going to consider the positive things that bring about spiritual faithfulness. And I'm going to give you some practical application before we conclude together here today. And the first question I want to ask is this. What produces spiritual failure? What produces spiritual failure? First, in this progression, is that failure begins when complacency sets in. Failure begins when complacency sets in. We see in verse 10 what the problem was. The generation who had sought to be faithful, the leadership who was guiding these people down the right path, they died, they left, and then another generation rose up who did not know the works of the Lord, or what he had done for Israel. They did not have this relationship with him. The generation before had seen God's hand at work. They had miraculously crossed the Jordan River at flood stage. And after God delivered them, they took 12 stones under the direction of Joshua. And they set those 12 stones up one each for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they set them up as an altar of remembrance for what God had done. In Joshua chapter 4 and verse 6 and 7 gives us insight into the purpose of those stones and the remembrance that they were to set aside for who God was and what he had done. And the Bible says, when your children ask in the time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them what the waters, uh, that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel as a memorial forever. These are the people who saw the walls of Jericho come crumbling down. These were the people who had seen God fight against five Amorite kings who were destroyed with large hailstones. These were the people who had seen the sun stand still, as it were, by the power of God. And now they've passed from the scene, and the next generation rises up. And somehow, some way, complacency set in, 
And they failed to receive from that generation who God was and what he had done. There was a failure somewhere in there, in the connection from generation to generation. And as a result of that, the generation that followed spiritually failed the Lord. In the 1996 Olympic Games, the runners in the 4 by 100 relay for the United States were expected to win. After all, the United States has won 75% of the time in this particular event in modern history. They had four of the fastest sprinters in all of the world. They were the defending Olympic champions and world record holders. They were running on their own soil. And the Americans had won 14 out of 18 previous races. John Drummond, Tim Harden, Mike Marsh, and Dennis Mitchell lined up to run the race. And they promptly lost to the Canadians. Drummond flinched at the start. He ran a solid first leg, but when he handed the baton to Harden, he did so with some caution. He had his hand too far into the baton, and when he handed it off, it was not enough for a smooth pass from one runner to the next. Harden reached out to receive the baton and reposition it, but it slowed him down. And then when he got to the next leg of the race, there was an awkward exchange between Harden and Marsh. And their failure to effectively pass the baton from one runner to the next brought on their defeat. You see, spiritually, we have the responsibility to successfully pass the baton of the faith from generation to generation. Israel failed. And I'm concerned that we are in a similar situation in the United States, even among people who call themselves Christians. Current research indicates that millennials who make up the younger generation have been leaving the church in alarming numbers, and this statistic is not changing. In fact, it could be getting worse. One study shows that 59% of this generation who was raised in church has already left the church. Time will tell how many of those come back. But what we also see is that those who have no religious affiliation at all in the United States are now at a number of about 35%. And it's estimated that in the millennial generation, that number is 50% or higher. No religious identification or affiliation at all. This is the circumstance we find ourselves in in Christianity in the West. I'm reminded of the church at Laodicea, the words that Jesus had to speak to them in Revelation 3 in verse 15 and following. He said, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to speak you out of my mouth. And here's what he says in identifying them. You say I am rich I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Complacency comes from a sense of self-sufficiency. We have what we need. We're satisfied with where we are. We can handle life as it is. We are comfortable and we are not aware of our true spiritual 
condition. And what concerns me is that there are so many families that would identify themselves as Christian families. And they would say, yes, I believe in Christ, yet the evidence of their lives are nothing more than a complacent lukewarmness in their walk with God. And we've got to be aware of our condition if we're going to see the solution. And we're going to be faithful rather than a spiritual failure. There's a second part of this progression here. Failure deepens when compromise is tolerated. Failure deepens when compromise is tolerated. Look again at verse 11. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They angered the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the Ashtoreths. Even in the days of Joshua, admittedly, they didn't reach their full potential, but they did maintain some sense of faithfulness to God. But after his death and the death of that generation, they fell headlong into the worship of idolatry. Don't you find it odd that people are willing to exchange worship of the one true living God who is the creator and the redeemer and the sustainer of all things for something that is formed and fashioned with hands? You say, why is that? Because our nature is to desire something that we can control and manipulate and get to do what we want it to do rather than being subject to someone who is greater. And that's exactly the nature of idolatry. Man would rather serve a God of his own creation than the real living God who cannot be controlled. And the gods that people follow after are the ones that will feed their sinful desires. The Baals are mentioned here. That was attractive because they thought he was the god uh, over weather and nature and over the agricultural success. There were Baals that were associated with particular geographic locations. And it's interesting that the word Baal means husband or owner. Now make this connection here because in the Old Testament it is clear that the relationship that God has with his people is similar to a marriage relationship. That we are betrothed to God, that we belong to God. That we are to be singularly and wholeheartedly committed in our relationship with him. In the New Testament we see this come into full picture of our relationship with Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. Humanly speaking, no earthly spouse would think that it was okay to introduce someone else into their marriage because the husband and the wife are to be fully and wholeheartedly committed to one another. And so it is in our relationship with God. None of us should even think of interjecting anything or anyone between us and our relationship with the living God. The Canaanite idol, the Ashtoreths, were was attractive because she was thought to be the goddess of love and sex and fertility. Imagine that. Similar to the spiritual focus or lack thereof by many in our day. And the result was that the people abandoned God. And today, many professing believers have compromised. And they've fallen in love with the idols of the world. Pleasure, power, position, possessions, even other people. 
These are the things that people chase after in the West. Oh, you can go around the world today and see that the worship of God's made with hands is alive and well. When I was in the island state, city-state of Singapore just a couple of weeks ago, every transportation vehicle that I got in had some type of idol sitting on the dash of the vehicle. Maybe for good luck or for success or health or something else, even if they were only nominally attached with this idol, it was there front and center as a reminder of whom they were giving their allegiance to. And for us, our idols are sometimes less visible, but they are just as destructive. And you could ask a lot of people in the church, for example, what their goals are for their children. First on their list would not be to honor God and to live a life of faithfulness. First on their list would be to get a good education and to make a lot of money. And that in itself is nothing more than an idolatrous focus. What are our priorities? What do we care about? What do we truly value? And this progression failure begins when complacency sets in. It deepens when compromise is tolerated. And then thirdly, failure results in consequences that are painful. Verse 14, the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them and they could no longer resist their enemies. And whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. God's response to compromise is no surprise. There are themes consistently in the scripture of consequences for disobedience and blessing for faithfulness. This is not a health and wealth teaching. This is the heart of the scripture that God blesses and honors and keeps those who bless and honor and focus on him. And God brings consequences to bear on the lives of those who ignore him. This is God's disciplining hand on us. And in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He chastises those who are sons of his. So the very fact that God would bring consequences to bear on us is a sign that we belong to God to begin with. And God does this because he loves us. God permits consequences to come and even brings them to bear upon our lives so that we can turn back to him and repent. That's why the consequences come. And as a parent, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you understand discipline well and you know the value of it. And you understand that you discipline those that you love and you care for. And God does the same. Complacency leads to compromise, which leads to consequences that result in spiritual failure. We've considered the negative. Let's now turn our attention to the positive. What produces spiritual faithfulness? What produces spiritual faithfulness? Well, first, faithfulness is encouraged by fervor in worship of God. Romans chapter 12 and verse 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal, 
be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. The word slothful means slow or lazy in our zeal. Zeal is a word that means haste or diligence or striving after something. To be fervent means to boil with heat so that our spirit is to boil over. We're to be on fire in our service to God. One translation said, don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the master. You say, well, how can I know if I'm fervent in spirit? How can I know if I'm not slothful? How can I know whether or not I've got this burning zeal in my heart for God and my family does and my church does? What are you passionate about? What occupies your heart and your mind? What determines the priorities that you set personally and for your family? And what are the priorities that we set for this church? You see, God knows not only what we do, but he knows the motivation of why we do it. And he knows whether or not we're fervent in our spirit. He knows whether or not we're doing what he wants us to do. A.W. Tozer said that many Christians in our day are lukewarm, will not be denied by anyone with an anointed eye, but the cure is not to stir them up to a frenzy of activity. That would take them out of one error and into another. What we need is a zealous hunger for God, an avid thirst after righteousness, a pain-filled longing to be Christ-like and to be holy. We need a zeal that is loving, self-effacing, and lowly, and no other kind will do. I shared those statistics with you about what's happening, the exodus from the church. There are other statistics that are just as concerning, if not more so. It's said now that the average churchgoer attends about one out of every three Sundays, if that. If they don't have something more attractive that they want to do, if they're not off on leisure, or they don't have their kids at a sporting event, or they don't want to just lay in bed, they come about every third Sunday. And I just look at all the statistics and I think, either we're just going to sit back and just watch it happen, Or somebody's going to call it like it is. Somebody's going to stand and say, it does not have to be this way. Somebody's got to call the people of God to say, this is not the quality of the Christian life that God is calling you to. Somebody's got to say that Jesus Christ did not die for nothing. That he did not send his spirit into the world so that we could be complacent and compromise and suffer the consequences. He did not die and he was not raised from the dead so that we can watch our children when they get grown walk out those back doors never to return again because of the example that we set for them. We cannot just stand by and say it's okay to set up these idols of the culture and think that somehow our kids are going to turn out okay. Because they're not. What you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. And if you show your kids that the Lord is only important enough to show up every third or fourth Sunday, if you don't have something better to do, Your kids won't give one whit of a care for the Lord when they get grown. It just got real quiet 
in this building. How could it be that we say we believe in the gospel, that God is the greatest of all, that people should hear about Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, that people who are hungry need to be fed, that people who are lost need to be saved, that babies who can't speak for themselves need to have a voice for them with someone speaking for them, and then sit back and spend our resources on ourselves, barely give anything to the Lord, hardly sacrificing at all, how could it be that the church in 21st century America in the West that is the most wealthy church that has ever existed on the face of the planet, that the average church member, we're not talking about the world, the average church member might invest 2 to 3% of their resources for the Lord's work. How could that be? How could we take our faith so insincerely? How could we be so selfish in our understanding of what God has entrusted to us? And how could it be that we could deny the work of God by not using our spiritual gifts? When when you're off doing your own thing and the church is still rolling along or we're going to the furthest parts of the earth and we're on mission or we're ministering to those who are poor and hungry at a certain time of the year, and you're nowhere to be seen, the church suffers and you suffer. Because God has called you to this glorious Christian life. And He's given you everything that you could possibly need, and then some. He has poured out His grace on you, and it is a superabundant grace. And yet we give no thought of setting priorities that are contrary to it. So here's my point in all of this. We can't change all of Christendom. We can't change the overall direction of the church in the West. We can't change that. But i tell you what we can change. We can change our individual lives. We can impact our family unit. And when individuals get serious about their relationship with God and they see the worth of King Jesus in all that they do and their lives and their families are shaken because of that and they're filled with zeal and they have a fervency for the Lord like they've never had before, then a church can be changed. And when a church is changed, people will be drawn to that because they'll say the power of God is there. How could it be that we would just go through the motions week in and week out? We're just doing our religious duty. We're just showing up just because it's the thing to do. And our hearts are as dead as a cold stone. It cannot be. That's not the life God has called us to. And if we go in that direction, we're going to suffer the consequences. And I'd say to you, secondly here, faithfulness is evidenced by integrity in the ways of God. The prophet Micah, chapter 6 and verse 8, says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 
You see, Israel's focus was on external religious rites. They asked if God would be satisfied with burnt offerings because it was required by the law. Second, they asked if they should bring thousands of rams with ten thousands of rivers of oil, which was, of course, hyperbole. Third, they asked whether they should offer their firstborn sons to God in surrender. Would that be enough to praise God? And God says, guess what? I don't need your religious rites, and I don't need your sacrifices. What I need is you. I need you. And it's the same call for us today. The Spirit of God is saying to us, we want to do what is right, but we want to do it for the right reasons. Because we're zealous for God. We want to do justice and live with a sense of right and wrong. We want to live with a kind of love that protects other people, particularly those who cannot help themselves. We want to walk humbly with a heart that is focused toward God. That's the life God is calling us to. And we've got to keep on keeping on, even if it's not convenient. And even if we don't see the fruit of it. I tell you, in recent years... My heart has been heavy with the departure of some faithful, faithful servants of God from this body of Christ. Many of whom, their names were not even known widely in the church. But when it came time to be committed and be here together with the people of God, they were here. They faithfully gave, even if it wasn't large amounts from fixed incomes that they have. we still got some of these folks around, but I'm telling you, they're passing from the scene quickly. They were dependable like clockwork to pray and love the church and love the work of God and love the people of God. And I'm telling you, we have lost some treasures in our midst as a result of that because many in the generations that are following do not demonstrate the same characteristics. And somewhere along the way, we've got to say, that's not going to be us. Are we going to be the generation of Joshua and the generation who followed that was faithful and leading and servant? Are we going to be the generation that forgot we even knew the Lord? Are we just going to forget what it means to serve God? Are we going to think that somehow we're going to be unfaithful now while we've got young children and we've got all these activities and we've got all these distractions? We're going to be unfaithful now, but someday we're going to get it together. Friend, if you don't get it together now, there is a great likelihood you will never get it together in your priorities. Who's going to step up? Who's going to take the baton? And are we going to pass it well? In 1912, medical missionary Dr. William Leslie and his wife Clara went to live and minister to a tribal people in the most remote part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They returned home 17 years after they went, discouraged, feeling they had not made a difference. Nine years later, he dies, doesn't even know what has happened. And in 2010, a team led by Eric Ramsey made a surprising discovery when they went back to the region these people had served in. They found a network of reproducing churches hidden like glittering diamonds in the dense jungle where Dr. Leslie was stationed. Based on previous research, they thought that the tribe there might have had some exposure to Jesus Christ and the gospel, but no real understanding of what it was or who he is or what he's done. And their findings were shocking in a sense and not surprising in another sense. They went into villages and they found a church 
in each of the villages in that region, including a 1,000-seat building where the people would come and worship. And yet this man had gone. He planted the seeds. He didn't see it take root, and he didn't see it flourish with fruit. And here's what I want to say to you, church. The generation that follows us, that comes through the ministry of Cross Lanes Baptist Church and beyond, it's either going to be a flourishing, fruitful tree for the glory of God, or it's going to be like that barren fig tree that Jesus identified and cursed to bear no fruit again. And what's going to make the difference? is our example of faithfulness to them. Our desires, our direction, our dependability. And I want to show you here next that faithfulness is rewarded by blessings in the will of God. Faithfulness is rewarded by blessings in the will of God. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 and following says. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. When you hope for blessings in the will of God, there is a change in your priorities from the temporal to the eternal. Because you know that you have a better possession awaiting you in the presence of God, which is Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate reward. When you hope for blessings in the will of God, there is a change from valuing what other people think about you to valuing more what God thinks about you. We live for an audience of one. And I say this particularly for families. Listen, we've got a culture that the tide is pushing hard against Christian families. And we've been like the frog in the kettle for all too long. And we've given our kids away. And we've sacrificed our kids on the altar of sports. And we've surrendered our kids on the altar of financial success. And we've pushed them out there. And we thought, oh, we're going to pull them back. And our faith is so strong that it's going to be okay. And when we give them up and we give them over, we should not be surprised with the results that we get. God is calling us to something different to value what he thinks about us. And when you hope for blessings in the will of God, you put other people ahead of yourself. We're so sinfully self-centered. A Christian who loves God is going to focus on loving others. And the most important part of this passage, I believe, in Hebrews chapter 10 is this. Listen. The coming one will come and he will not delay. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about King Jesus. And you understand that we are going to be accountable for how we've lived our lives to King Jesus. And the blessing or the eternal reward that we'll receive will be consistent with how we've lived our lives for Him now. We don't earn our salvation, but we serve and we live in light of our salvation. And I'll tell you, I don't want to be embarrassed when I stand before the Lord. Because I did everything but the main thing. You see, the book of Judges presents repeated cycles of sin and bondage and repentance that would last for nearly 350 years. God sent judges on their behalf as political deliverers of sorts. Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and 
yet they still return to their same situation. And the cycle of sin that is identified in Judges is all too often repeated in the lives of Christians today. But I just say to you, spiritual life doesn't have to be that way. When we're filled by the Spirit, we're led by the Word of God, we're not trying to live up to anything. We're instead living in light of what Jesus has already accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit, guided by God's Word. Let me give you these practical instructions very quickly, and then we're going to close a little bit different this morning than we normally do. First, you need to pursue God. James chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. How's your pursuit of God? You need to provide a godly example. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5 and following spoke to the Israelites and said, You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You're to keep this word in your life and Uh, on your wrist and on your doorpost and talk with your children about these things along the way and and make sure that they're central to who you are and you need to provide that godly example and then you need to pray diligently because we're in a spiritual battle there's light and darkness and friend you can do all the right things and it end up in the wrong way There's no guarantee because people make their own decisions and children follow in their own paths. But I tell you what, a pretty solid guarantee is if you ignore the Lord and you set the wrong priorities and you're satisfied with this cultural Christianity that's taken root in the West, you're probably going to lose your kids spiritually. They're probably going to walk away because they saw in you something that was half-hearted and insincere and their response is, what's the point? What's the point? Thankfully, God's the God of redemption and grace. And God can bring wayward children back, even by his power. And that's why we need to pray. So I'll say this to you in closing. Faithfulness or failure is a matter of focus. It's a matter of focus. You've got to decide what your life with God is going to be. And trust him and follow. Spire heads together just for a moment. We're not going to sing a closing song today. I tell you, my, my heart has been heavy with this message. I was raring to go last Sunday. God had other plans, but now here we are. I, I, I don't know why, but, but I believe this message could be one of the most important messages I have ever preached in the life of this church. The question is, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with God's word and God's son? Maybe God is leading you today to take a first step of commitment. If you don't even know Jesus, that's the starting point. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. What a day it would be to come today and say, I want to follow Jesus. He'll transform your life. But maybe this message is going to lead into some discussions at homes and around dinner tables and between husbands and wives and between grandparents and children. And you're going to say, who who are we going to be? We're just going to be a statistic? We're just going to pack it in because that's the way the culture's going? Are we going to take a stand for Christ? Are we going to be different 
in this generation, even different among churches, are we going to be different? Father, this is your word. These are your people. We thank you for the clarity of what we learn from this passage of Scripture. May we take it now, not with merely outward tears of repentance, which lead nowhere, but with a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, which leads to life, and that whatever comes from this would be for your great glory and for the sake of the name of your Son, Jesus, and all those who don't yet know him around the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.